Welcome to season four of Overcoming Working Mum Burnout. This podcast is all about preventing burnout in the workplace by changing the systems that impact how mums show up at work. And sometimes those systems are part of our social infrastructure outside of work. In the first three seasons of the podcast, I interviewed researchers, DEI and HR experts, coaches and mental health experts. We talked a lot about individual change because that is what we think is within our control. But if we stop there, the collective change that we need will not happen. Only 13% of male senior managers spend time in caregiving compared to 52% of female senior managers. This season, I am therefore interviewing dads. Unless dads are more active participants in the home and more supportive leaders at work, working mums will continue to struggle. They'll burn out and miss out on leadership opportunities. Men have to make room for women to lead at work, and women have to make room for men to lead in the home. We can't make change alone, so I want to learn more about how we can support men to become active participants in the home and role models for caregiving leaders at work. This week, I'm learning from Eric Arthrell, who helped research and write the report, The Design of Everyday Men, a new lens for gender equality progress, when he was at Deloitte. This report highlights that the always-on, always-available culture leads to greater gender inequality and burnout. Eric now works from home and is the main caregiver for his two children. He talks about how dads have to educate themselves to become more active participants in parenting, and how supporting mums to take breaks from parenting is key. I hope you learn as much from this conversation as I did. Hello, my name is Eric Arthrell. I am a father of two young children. I have a four-year-old daughter named Elin, and I have a two-year-old son named Max, happily married to my wife, Erin. We both currently work full-time. I am a co-founder and operator of our small business, selling unbleached bamboo facial tissues that look great in your home. Our company is called Moosh. And my wife also works full-time, like I said, in her a CPG brand marketing role. Great. Thank you so much for those details. So we're going to step right into maybe a hard question to answer, but this podcast is about burnout and finding burnout solutions. And it can really help listeners when they hear how others might have experienced burnout or how they've worked to prevent it or overcome it. So is that something you've experienced in your life that you're willing to share about? Or how do you manage it if you haven't? (laughs) Completely. Before my entrepreneurship role that I'm in now, I worked for one of the big four management consulting firms. I worked at Deloitte for close to 10 years, a little bit less than 10, as a management consultant. And certainly in that role, the demands in terms of hours worked and to a lesser extent, some of the travel as well can be quite demanding. And for me, I think it was really a wake-up call specifically when my wife and I were talking about having children and trying to understand the different roles that we would play 
We obviously both believed trying to be equitable and equal between ourselves and balancing career and parenthood. And it became clear quite early on that the trajectory in these highly demanding careers are difficult to balance with also being a parent, especially a new parent. And I can think of one situation in particular. My wife was still on her parental leave. Our daughter was less than a year old and I was working and I would try to be home between five and 6 p.m., something like that. So I could be there for dinner and obviously she's been with the young baby all day. So she has a lot on her plate, my wife being being that person. And I take the commuter train here in Toronto, it's called the GO train. So I take the GO train home, which means I need to catch the GO train at a specific time. And I worked downtown and I would try to work up to literally the very last second in my desk and then throw everything into my computer bag and sprint full out sprinting in my dress pants and dress shirt down the street to catch the GO train and running onto the GO train and being in a big sweat because I've just run down there to try to get home. And this would happen every single day. And then you get home, you do dinner, the one kid at the time goes to bed, and then you're trying to get back online and finish any other work that maybe you didn't quite wrap up for the day. And then you rinse and repeat that days, weeks, months, over and over. And it just comes to a point you have to make a decision for yourself is, what is going to be the way in which you balance your time and then the pandemic came and went or it came and is still going on and the second kid came as well and i think for me i had taken two parental leaves of about six months apiece with each of my children and after i went back to work after my second parental leave i had decided that i was set pretty clear boundaries i turn off at 5 p.m i will turn back on the following morning unless there's a house on fire then maybe i'll go back online that night and Through nobody's fault, just the nature of how organizations operate, I still found myself getting back online in the evenings, even after setting these very clear boundaries. And yeah, it just came a decision point where I was like, what am I going to spend my life on? What am I going to spend my time on? And this time with your kids is valuable. So that was part of the reason why I decided to take on this entrepreneurship role, which in the early days has been demanding, but also provided far more flexibility around where and when to work and kids need to stay home because they have runny noses. I could be the person that does that. My wife still works in her professional organization job. So yeah, so that was the burnout for me was right after that first kid came and it was just like, oh, this is not sustainable and you have to make a decision. So. And it's really hard to unlearn those habits that we have of working in evenings. It is really something that's ingrained. We do it all the time. So suddenly replacing it or or unlearning it is quite challenging. Have you seen also different challenges? Because I know entrepreneurs have slightly different challenges. You have the benefits of the flexibility, which again, workplaces need to provide to prevent burnout. It's a really important key. But then on the downside, that feeling of not having the transitions, even though they're hectic ones. How are you managing it now as an entrepreneur? Have you got slightly different techniques you use? And how's the boundaries going? I'm also terrible at boundaries. Yeah. So here's the way that I've thought about it. And I could spend a very long time answering that question, but I always felt who gets to benefit from my quote overwork. If I'm going to be putting in extra hours on weekends or evenings, extending myself beyond the nine to five, Monday to Friday, who gets to benefit from that? And I found with entrepreneurship is that 
me and my family, we are the ones that get to benefit almost exclusively from that. And so that's made it far easier for me to wrap my head around, oh, hey, the kids have been put down bed, but now I need to get online to interact with our supplier, which is in China and, and they're 12 hours time difference. So the only time to have a conversation with them is after 9 p.m. And it makes it far easier to make that choice when I am the person that gets to benefit from this. And so I would say that it's like a mental state now where instead of getting back online at 9 p.m. to send something off to your superior so they can then go and present it to a client and win new business, now it's, I get on at 9 p.m. to do something to make a sale for our own business that goes directly into my pocket. I think that was a big thing. And also just, I've been in my career, so to speak, for 10 plus years now. I feel like I have a skill set and value that I'm ready to harvest for myself now. So why not be the person that gets to benefit from that? And then the flip side is also, I have almost complete flexibility to pick up the kids when they need to be picked up, drop them off when they need to be dropped off make meals when, you know, I need to make meals. My wife has been traveling for her work at times as well. So it's never an issue if she needs to be gone for two or three days. I'm just the person that takes care of the kids. And that's great because I have that flexibility. And so definitely with our stage of life as well, it's made a world of difference to have one parent have the ultimate flexibility when required. Great. That's really helpful. And and I think too, what you said about that you and your wife had conversations about your careers and having a family, that's such an important first start and not necessarily something that my husband and I did at that stage. And I think that was something that I failed to communicate how important my career was to me. So I think you've pretty much described what role you play at work and home and how you got there. And this is something else you want to add to that answer about anything day to day that you're doing and the way you split it up between your wife and yourself. I would just add on to what you just said is that we had like very explicit conversations about what parenthood would look like for ourselves before we had children. We knew before we started having kids that IVF was going to be the only route for us because of specific medical histories. And that actually made it far easier to be extra conscious about the decisions we would have to make because the IVF process is very long and very arduous and very medical. And so it wasn't something that we just decided one day to try to have kids. And so that sort of forced us to understand that decision in, in a greater detail. A part of my journey was understanding the importance of specifically paternity leave. Obviously, maternity leave is important. Anyone would understand that. We tend to seriously devalue the importance of paternity leave. And when I did research, I found all these positive correlations with men taking more parental leave. In societies where men take more parental leave, the wage gap between men and women is smaller. More women end up on boards. More women are in manager roles. More women are employed full time. The gender equality index is more equal. And so I was like, why are we not talking about paternity leave? And so when I looked around, both inside my own organization, but also just generally in corporate Toronto and corporate Canada, I didn't really see a lot of role models or men that were parents that had taken meaningful parental leave. And so it became a cause that I really believed in really heavily. And I needed to walk the talk as well by taking my own parental leave. And I think men are typically positioned as allies to gender equality, which I think that allyship is like the lowest bar that you can be as an ally. (laughs) I always talk about men as active participants in gender equality. And the reason why we should be active participants is that 
we as men get to benefit hugely from more freedom of expression and freedom of role and freedom of showing up in new and different ways that we've never allowed ourselves to experience. And I would say the major one is around parenthood and being a father that takes parental leave, that stays home with the kids, that gets to experience all those little developmental and bonding things that mothers have historically experienced much more of. And so in that sense, it's become like a really good cause for myself to feel more actively involved in gender equality. And honestly, I'm genuinely confused why more men wouldn't want to feel activist in that space. Like selfishly, you get to benefit from that. So why wouldn't you want to be involved in that? And it also enables and empowers um, other people to succeed in their own ways as well. And so it seems like a win-win on both sides or all sides, I should say. But to answer the question around the roles that we play at home and at work, it's something that I've tried to very consciously go after this role of actively participating man and father in this new parenthood dynamic. And I think you get a lot of benefits from that for yourself and also for your partner. Thank you so much for that. And I'll have some guests on who have worked specifically around parental leave and trying to get paid leave, especially here in the US that we're struggling with. But it is, I'm so glad that I am taking this opportunity to interview dads like yourself, because it's so powerful hearing it in your words. I really feel often that I'm out there trying to say these things and convey this message but I sense such a power of it also coming from you. So I appreciate that. And I love that difference, the active participant. So as probably listeners can already hear, (laughs) you're somewhat of an expert in this area and you have really thought deeply about these issues. So I'm just going to share with the listeners a little bit about the report that you sent to me when you previously worked on this report. And the report is called The Design of Everyday Men a new lens for gender equality progress. And so what I took away from this report in reading it, and thanks for sending it, and how it relates to burnout as well as equity is that our always on, always available mentality not only leads to burnout and lack of productivity, but it also causes gender inequality. And so some of the outcomes of this report or some of the suggestions from this report, the recommendations were around that leader's role modeling. As you mentioned yourself, there wasn't role models for you to follow. So leaders role modeling emotional intelligence. So emotional intelligence in terms of making mistakes and growth mindset, role modeling, bringing their whole self to work, role modeling, not doing the behaviors that lead to burnout, the overwork, the working outside of office hours. And some of the other recommendations were around when you have meetings to start with vulnerability, to start with a personal story or an admission of a mistake, to do personal check-ins, to take leave, like you did take paternity leave, take parental leave. And that at an organizational level, some of the suggestions were to subsidize coaching, which again, I really believe in too. I've benefited greatly from that. To have a personal and professional development plan that pays attention to both your personal and your professional life. Again, to help develop emotional intelligence in employees and particularly to focus on the specific behaviors that we do 
every day. It was less of saying that policies and programs can support us, but it's really going to, towards where I also sit in terms of what are the behaviors, what are the habits that we do every day that either help us or contribute to the problem. So I definitely appreciated that. So really what I'd like to ask you in this situation is what was the impact of this report and what parts of it do you think most resonated or did you most see the needle changing on and then transitioning into then what were the barriers and and what might be alternative solutions that you think might have more leverage? So tell us a little bit about this process of getting the report out there and what happened next. Yeah. So we researched and authored the report just as my wife was pregnant and then our baby was born. And I went on parental leave just as we launched this report into the world. It was a little bit unfortunate because I wasn't uh, able to capitalize right away on some of the outcomes from the report. But I think the, the impact that it drove was actually in internal socialization meetings. And so we would have the opportunity to sit down with not just leaders from our own organization, but leaders from other organizations as well, in almost a one-on-one type setting where we're trying to say, hey, this is the Design Everyday Men report. And in it, we talk about how the always on, always available workplace can actually be a hindrance to gender equality. And a big reason for that is that men in particular are status-driven individuals because of masculinity and from a cultural perspective men can feel like their status within the society or their status within the organization, let's say, is the thing that gives them their manhood, right? And we found that in some of our research. And so when you have an environment where it's always on, always available, and that's the best way to succeed is to be always always available, those men that can be quite status-driven individuals will tend to really lean into that always on, always available environment. And the result is that All the responsibilities that happen outside of work, like being a caregiver to children or to family members or to people in your family, being a household manager, making sure that meals are on the table, all the to-dos within the house are being taken care of, all those tasks and that mental load tends to more readily fall onto women that have traditionally played those roles and might feel more personal responsibility for playing those roles as well. And so what we were trying to do with this report is just call out the markers of success within an organization that might encourage men to behave in a certain way because they are status-driven individuals. And so it was very impactful, I think, when we sat down with these senior leaders, a lot of whom were men, and we would say, hey, here's our new report. This is what it's all about. It's going to help with gender equality, hopefully. And I think so often these senior male leaders are used to approaching gender equality from an allyship perspective. This is about someone else. Gender equality is about helping women succeed. So I will be a champion of this and I'll stand up for it and, and let me learn about it. And then you tell them about the Design of Everyday Men report and you're like, it's actually about how men can make decisions that might be to their own detriment, but they do it because that's what the organization values. And then there'd be like this weird, like, almost like silence as you're presenting the report from these senior men. And then it would click like 10 or 15 minutes into the presentation. They'd be like, oh, this is about me. Or or this is about how I've shown up in the organization for the past, whatever, 10, 15, 20 years, 30 years for some people. I'm trying not to self-aggrandize around the impact of the report, but I believe that it was quite a different way of thinking about gender equality. And so in that respect, what was the impact of the report? 
I think that in some instances, it was so foundational around how the organization operates that it was hard to come up with tactical or even strategic ways to address some of the findings in the report because it, it was much more foundational around the culture of the organization. And so the biggest things that I heard actually from some of the more senior men that I talked to is that this report gave them license to have these conversations now. Like it gave them license to reflect on who they are as fathers, on how they show up as a father, on how they measure success and status within the organization, what kind of behaviors they place status on. We had presented to the senior executive team of whatever, 10 or 15 people, something like that within our organization. And then a, a couple of weeks later, it was uh, Christmas and, and the holiday period. And there was a little holiday video that the CEO had made. And I noted that he specifically said, he's gonna just like completely take time off to spend time with family. He's gonna sit down with his kids and watch Netflix. And then he specifically said how he really likes rom-coms. He's excited to watch rom-coms with his kids on Netflix, totally detached from work. And I don't know if that was impacted by the report or not, but I do believe that like him feeling permission to talk about liking a rom-com and like completely detaching from work to a certain degree been impacted by our report around why men show up the way they do and how masculine ideals force men to experience certain emotions and not others and how we cut ourselves off from quote the feminine and then here he is talking about liking rom-coms which is like an incredible incredibly stereotypical feminine thing and i had heard from a few leaders throughout the organization that that the design of everyday men just gave more permission around having those conversations and more safety to showing up and saying, I'm going to take time off to spend time with my kids, or I need to leave at three o'clock today because my kids got a game and I got to drive them to that thing. Or there's definitely men that told me explicitly, they said, we saw you take parental leave and now I'm taking parental leave too with my kid. And they would send me a photo of them and their little baby girl in their stroller. And I was like, holy crap, that's amazing. And so I, I think it just provided more space for men specifically to show up in, in hopefully a new and different way, which is going to perpetuate in a very positive way, more gender equality and more gender equity within the organization, where we value and put status on behaviors that might more traditionally be associated with feminine behavior, which I think is an incredibly important. And I thought that was so important the way the report ended saying these skills of empathy that a robot cannot necessarily learn are the ones that we should start to value more for the future of work. So I thought that was also great perspective. So that's fantastic. I think giving permission is so important. That's why we have to do it out loud. I know a lot of people do take actions where they might try to set boundaries like you did when you returned to work. But unless we're really role modeling it out loud, that's why I'm so understanding of this quiet quitting conversation that's going on is people are doing that quietly because they are not in a safe place to do it publicly. But actually, that's what we need is leaders in these organizations to very much role model out loud because not only does it give everyone permission, but it demonstrates the behaviors we need to see and how actually you operationalize these things on a day-to-day -day basis. Because again, I think that's what's so challenging. So often we're thinking about just our awareness. We're not actually thinking about what are the things we do every single day 
that demonstrate our values or especially that the reward systems I think are so important. Like how do we reward collaborative leadership instead of competitive leadership? Yeah. And I think that was one of the eye-opening things that was researching the report, both through primary research where we're actually interviewing and following people to get some behavioral insights, but also just the research that already exists out there, all the studies and research reports. And to be honest, I was a little bit floored around the amount of research that shows that overwork leads to lower productivity <laughs> and that there's a reason why the eight hour workday exists. It's because like back in when labor unions were establishing and organized and companies were trying to get the most out of their employees, like they realized even back then, like decades and decades ago, that an eight hour workday was pretty good for maximizing productivity. And beyond that productivity wanes. And for knowledge workers, it might even be shorter than that. It might only be six hours a day of truly productive work before your productivity starts to drop off. And all the research around burnout and worse outcomes as a result, whether that's employee turnover or employee sick days or just mistakes overall that need to be remedied, like no good comes from overwork. And so it's mind blowing that also within that research, you find lots of examples of organizations where they found through academic research, the best way to succeed was by being always on, always available. And you would succeed faster being always on, always available, maybe even more so than someone else who was technically more skilled than you at that job. If you're willing to work longer hours at any time of day, you'll succeed faster. And it, it just, I don't know, it, it, it was, it was mind blowing that the research is there. This is not new concepts. It's just concepts that we have a really tough time accepting within organizations that making people work less hours might actually lead to better outcomes. Yeah, I, I don't know what the solution is to that necessarily, but it's not a newly researched concept. It's been around for quite some time. And that's where the research that's coming out most recently about four-day weeks is also showing that we don't lose productivity when the time is re reduced either. And at the moment, some of the data is showing that we're spending about 60% of our time working on how to work instead of actually doing the productive work that leads to the sales and the innovations as well. So that's a real problem. And we still are in this status quo of being very slow to have organizational change and shift change. And and we're seeing so much burnout of mums, particularly through the pandemic, as they've taken on homeschooling and other things. So what are some of the things that you think dads can do both at work and at home to help prevent working mum burnout? And what support do you need as a dad to be able to play that role of helping mums not burn out? Yeah, I've had a decent number of conversations with men that are going to become dads or have recently become dads and they've asked the same question like what do you do as a new dad to show up in the most equitable product productive way and the thing that i always say is you are never going to be invited into the parenthood conversation in my experience it, it can be a little bit focused on motherhood i think and as a new dad, if you didn't decide to engage with that, you could just go on your merry way, keep working, pass off all the parenthood responsibilities. If you're in a heterosexual relationship to your wife, then that might just work just fine for you. And you could continue on that path. I think that for dads that want to 
know how to engage in a more equitable way, you have to do the work yourself. You have to explicitly try to research, understand like what are the responsibilities of a new parent? What is the schedule of a newborn? What is the schedule of a six month old? What is the schedule of a 12 month old? What are the stages of development in terms of feeding and sleep schedules and when to introduce solids and all those little nuances around raising a tiny little human. I think to be gendered here, I think women, new mothers in a lot of instances, they will absorb that through osmosis because they're becoming a new mother and their social circle and their own mother and their friends. That's a tip of the tongue conversation, all those things, right? But for a dad, it's just not. Your dad probably didn't show up in that way. A lot of dads don't have experience in that. Your buddies, your bros are probably not having that conversation as explicitly. Your male colleagues at work, especially the ones that are more senior than you, probably aren't having that conversation with you. And so you might never be exposed to that. So that's my biggest recommendation is if you want to show up, you're going to have to do the work and you're going to have to want to do the work. I have a list of books that I think are must-reads. Bringing Up Bay, which is about an American couple raising a baby in France, and some of the parenting techniques that are maybe more French or European, I thought was amazing. Anything by Emily Oster. She has Expecting Better about pregnancy. She has Crib Sheet about the early months and years after birth. Now she's got one called Family Firm about raising from five years old and up through the school years. Like, I would read every single one of those books. And also, I would just be more educated around the idea of mental load and specifically running a household. And for whatever reason, I guess we'll blame the patriarchy for whatever reason, men and boys aren't really taught the skill set of what it takes to run a household in terms of the chores that need to be done and thinking ahead about those chores and planning around them and contingency planning for food and meals and all those things. Like it's just not a buzz of mental load that we are exposed to. And again, going back to my sort of main point that I've tried to make here is as a man, you could just never learn about that and go on your merry way. It might just never happen for you. And so I think being explicit and conscious about engaging with that and learning about it is like really important. Finally, around that point is that you need to take paternity leave full stop. My recommendation is at least three months solo your partner is back at work or doing whatever they do full-time and you are the sole stay-at-home parent for at least three months, somewhere within those first 12 to 18 months of your child's life. Because that's when you're establishing routines, that's when you're establishing default parenting to whichever parent is in charge of something. And it's when you get exposed to the mental load. And so I remember taking my first parental leave with our, our daughter my wife took 12 months or so, and I took months 12 through 18. In Canada, they allow parental leave up to 18 months, and the women get the first, I think, 17 weeks of that leave. And then the rest of the leave is for whoever wants to take it. E either parent can take it. And so I took six months of that. And I remember explicitly within the first month, maybe, you are feeling like you're constantly behind on everything the entire day while your spouse is at work and you're taking care of the baby and like you feel like you're constantly playing catch up and then your spouse comes home and then you feeling immediately like irritable headache world crashing down frustrated because my brain was just not at all used to the mental load of being at home with the baby all day like i think at work you can turn your brain on and turn it off like you're going into a meeting, brain is on. 
you know, you, you come out of that meeting, you turn it off and you go to the washroom for five minutes. And so your brain is off and you turn it back on. But like when you have a baby at home, especially a newborn, there isn't the off switch. You're constantly thinking of, okay, okay, the baby's going to get up at this time. And then we got to have breakfast by this time. Cause we got to go out and pick up groceries and then we got to get home to have, have a nap at this time. And so I have to be here at this time. And then when the baby's napping, then I'll do the laundry and the laundry's done. Then my spouse comes up at this time. I want to make sure that we have dinner, but we haven't got the, it's just constant, right? It's just constant buzz. And then your spouse gets home and then finally you can share that buzz in your brain with someone else and then your brain crashes. And that's why I got like the irritability and the headaches and the frustration and you're kind of a dick to your spouse. It's just tough. And so I think eventually you become more acclimatized to that, but without that paternity leave, without that, for me, it was six or seven months, but for others, it might be closer to two or three months without at least that three month time frame to really experience that and understand that. I think you've missed an opportunity to support your spouse in the way that they deserve. Cause that sets the foundation for even now it's two 15 and I'm like, what's for dinner? I don't know. I got to start thinking about dinner because the kids going to be home by four 30. The door beside me opens, the kids come in and we got to know what we're having for dinner or else we're screwed. And so it's one of those things that becomes habit, which I think is what you need to really show up in an equitable way for your partner. Great. Those are all such fantastic examples and really demonstrate the challenge and the mental load. And no wonder we do burn out as well, doing that day after day as well. It is such a challenge. So that's great advice and saying how the man is going to have to not necessarily have that invite to be let in. So let's transition a little bit to the mums. What are the things we can do either at work or at home to help ourselves? Also, given that the fact when we do try to do behaviors like self-promote or negotiate, sometimes we're overly penalized for those non-stereotypical behaviors. So is there anything that you can describe that you think has helped this process that you think other mums can also do to think about to open that door a little more? Yeah, I think those are good questions. I think that I know maybe this is less to do with the actual work environment itself, but one of the biggest things that I tried to do with my own spouse is honestly to make sure that number one, I'm giving her the space and empowerment to like truly step away from the kids. <laughs> and also on top of that, she internally feels like I had permission to step away from the kids and I can do so in a meaningful way. And I think that here we are four years into our first child. And I think that we have achieved a pretty good balance on that. I think that we both feel enabled to like truly just do something social for ourselves with friends, which means the other parent is going to take on the kids for that amount of time. And both of us feel pretty enabled in that. But I think because we live in a world where the perception of whether or not you're a good mother is so closely tied to whether or not you're hands-on raising your kids 24 seven, I think because that perception exists so strongly, it can be really difficult for mothers to like truly step away from their kids and do that work trip or work until 7 or 8 p.m. and miss dinner or make these trade-offs that might help them succeed more in the workplace, to be honest. I think that's another part of this is that we can want workplaces to change how they operate and move more to flexibility and move more to more reasonable hours. But I think in my own experience, there's just workplaces that they just operate in a certain way and that's the way that it is. And you can either be mad about it or you can decide not to participate, which is what I did, or you can embrace that and you can find ways to make it work. And I think that 
being able to create a home environment that is flexible and supportive to help you make that choice, whichever one it might be, is really important. And so when it comes to new mothers succeeding in organizations, we're always on, always available as a way that you have to do it. A huge reliance should be on the spouse or husband, let's say, to fill in there. And I think that's definitely not talked about enough that in my experience, I haven't done the research, but in my experience, the majority of senior executives either have a full-time nanny or a full-time household manager or a stay-at-home, normally wife, sometimes a stay-at-home husband. (laughs) And so it's incredibly common for only one person's career to take priority. And the the reality is during the time that happened to the husband. But if we want to have a world where the woman is the person that gets to succeed more often, then what that means is that men are the ones that have to show up differently. And so we can't think that we live in a world where you could have two CEOs, men and women that are married to each other without some kind of third party that takes care of the family and, and household. That's just, that's not reality. And so if you want to live in a household where the mother is the person that's becoming the CEO, then that means that the man needs to be the one that, again, I'm talking heteronormative here. The man needs to be the person that steps back. I think it's just making a different choice around how they spend their time with the kids. What can mothers or, or women do that might help us achieve more gender equity and, and less burnout? I, I think it's having the conscious conversation with your partner around how you spend your time, feeling internally like you do have the permission to like not pick up the kids from school not make dinners, like not be there all the time, decide randomly on a Saturday that you want to take two hours out to go work out or, or go to the local pub or cafe or something like that for a couple hours. Like you could do all those things. You need to do it. <laughs> you can, and then you should. And that can be really difficult, I think. And I don't underestimate the amount of societal pressure and internal doubt that might restrict that behavior. Right. But it's so helpful when the partner gives you that permission and gives the permission in a way that maybe even says, look, I know that's not what other people might tell you, but hey, what's most important is between us and I give you, I give you permission sort of thing. Not that you need it, but it's, it's okay. Like it's just okay. Yes, it's hard because you might think that you're a bad mom, but hey, I'm the person that knows you're not. When you're struggling with your own self-belief and identity, the support of a partner who can reinforce it is at least like that barrier to the societal expectations. There's a bit of a buffer then that we have because someone else close to us believes in those rights. Yeah, I think it can be really valuable. I actually had a, I had a work colleague that I was having this exact conversation with him and uh, he had multiple young kids and his wife had quite a demanding career of her own. He actually called his wife's friend and said, hey friend, can you invite my wife out for whatever, they're gonna do some kind of activity, some like thing that they wanted to do out and about, some physical activity, because he was like, my wife needs to get out of the house. So he was actually planning play dates, like behind your back almost, because he wanted her to feel permission to go and engage in those things. And is that an extreme example? Sure. Is that morally and ethically the right way to go about it? I don't know. But it's definitely a tactic that maybe I've employed as well, where you like plan something for your spouse to just give them permission to go and do something on their own. And then you push them out the door a little bit (laughs) to be like, go do that. Because again, the expectation from society and our culture and our social networks can be so strong to not prioritize those things. Yeah, those are great examples. Those are great. So before I ask you about your favorite dad joke, because I just absolutely love dad jokes, (laughs) particularly because in 
our household, I'm the one that does improv and stand-up comedy. <laughs> so we always say there isn't such a thing as a mum joke. It's just good humour. So, yeah, what sort of future and home and work life future do you want for your kids? I always think it's so important to have that vision so that we can then reverse engineer to get there. So what would that look like? And how do you think we can get there? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. So I think that maybe this is just a parent of young children trying to idealize what the future would look like. And maybe by the time they're in their teenage years and making decisions about next steps, maybe my opinions will change. But I think at, at this point in my life, sort of set aside the idea from a career perspective, where they need to achieve a certain thing from a family perspective, or they need to achieve a certain thing from an income or standard of living perspective. I think a lot of the privilege that I have, the white cisgender male does not necessarily need to worry about my economic future because I am educated and have a career experience and we have parents and things like that, that have been able in the past to support us to get to this point. And I think about, do I really want or desire or need my children to achieve more than I have achieved? I don't think so at all. I think that I would want them to not feel burdened with the idea that they need to become the SVP or some big career aspiration at the expense of things like personal time or exercise time or family time or friends time. Like I would want them to experience fully at every stage of life, all there is to, to offer, which means a diversity of experiences. And I think that's really what I want. And that's what I try to role model for the kids as well. Is you do not have expectations gendered or otherwise around how you need to show up in this world. So just go after something that you're passionate about and pursue that thing. And I think that means for me on a day-to-day, like not over-investing in any one direction, not over-investing in work, not over-investing in being at home with the kids 24-7, because that's also not something that is mentally sustainable for me, but just exploring all there is to offer and not feeling like you're missing out on anything because of some kind of status or job-driven expectation. And the last part of that is I do think a lot about having a son and a daughter and what that means for them. And, you know, me in my sort of more feminist leading lifestyle feel super enabled to support my daughter to explore whatever paths that she wants in the future i actually worry more about my son and what he's going to experience like he's only two years old and we're already talking about whether or not he should bring a pink towel to pool day or something and that's 100 ridiculous <laughs> and so i think a lot about how do i help both of our kids but my son in particular know that he could have any kind of expression or, or freedom to show up in the way that he wants to show up that he desires and that's a lot of expectation on me to role model a lot of those things i had nail polish on earlier that i was just taking off before this call because my daughter was putting nail polish on so i was like my son should put it on too if he wants i don't care if he does that i'll wear it too. that's a small example obviously but just our daughter's only four but she definitely already understands what boys and girls are supposed to do based on a somewhat gendered interpretation of the world. And I would just hope that that we, my wife and I, both of us try to really actively break down those expectations, not so that they pursue anything inauthentic, but just to make them feel enabled to pursue whatever they do want to pursue. Like our daughter is super into pink and purple and dresses, not because we were like, you're a girl, you have to do this. It's because that's what she was into. And so that's totally fine. But we want her to know 
It doesn't have to be pink and purple. It can be whatever color you want, but it's great. That's the one that you're into. I think you answered your question there, but like for the future, I think it's just, um, it's not about success, like status and achieving all that you possibly can achieve from like an economic perspective. I think it's just about living authentically and experiencing every stage of life as fully as you can within a certain degree of stability. So, yeah. That's so important. And again, your role as a role model, the same as your report revealed, it's so important. And I think as mums too, we have to understand that when we're being this martyr to motherhood, that's not the role we want for our kids. That's not the life I want for my daughter. So I love that, the authenticity and the embracing all parts of life. That's going to help prevent burnout as well as support gender inequity. But it is a struggle because like you're saying, you've got these values and how do you operationalize them in daily behaviors? To be honest, that's what's so important. The nail polish is the daily behavior that's the operization of that. So these little examples are exactly how we have to learn to play it out. Yeah. So if you're willing, just to end your favorite dad joke. I was trying to think of my favorite dad joke, and I feel like so many of them just roll off the tongue. (laughs) Yeah. And it's just like, it's really funny how that works, where it's just like all of a sudden you're just like, oh my God, I'm a dad. That was, that joke was so lame. It just happens. So the one that I was going to tell you is not necessarily like a one liner joke. It's just something that that I do a lot. But when, when the kids are really freaking out about something that I think is not like, a big deal. I want them to stand outside the kitchen because we're opening the oven. And then one of them starts to break down because they can't stand directly in front of the oven as I open it. There's that song by Maroon 5 called You Will Be Loved. It goes, you will be loved. And so I always change it to, you will survive. You <laughs> will survive. As in, this isn't a big deal. You're going to survive. Everything's okay. And obviously the kids do not take well to that at all. They hate when I do that. But I think <laughs> as a dad, sometimes it's your job to annoy your kids. <laughs> exactly. We have one too where we bust out, let it go. Because so often they hate it, but actually it does work. Yeah, because humor is so important in this process, right? 100%. You know, yeah, to help us 100%. through. Laughing is such a fantastic burnout remedy. I 100% agree. I think one kid was was tough and then two kids was like being hit in the head with a brick two kids was incredibly difficult and like for me personally over the past two years to be able to find mindfulness and, and humor as a way to just deal with like incredible amounts of stress and frustration and quite frankly anger as well has been such an important thing and sometimes that means you're finding humor at the expense of your kids because that's sometimes the only way to manage through it sandwiched neatly within empathy obviously and understanding which is incredibly important for your kids thanks so much for listening today don't forget to check out my website www.drjacquelinecurr.com for your free guides to prevent burnout. Would you like to join a cohort of women like yourself who want to disrupt the status quo, but are facing constant barriers and like you are beginning to wonder whether your approach will even gain traction? Have you experienced the supportive environment of executive group coaching, knowing you're not alone and learning from others' mistakes and strategies, but you want to have more concrete goals and measures of progress? In conjunction with my leadership training, I'm facilitating small groups of women executives in peer learning collaboratives. This is a scientific process that it's used in medicine when important new recommendations need to be put into practice and there's likely to be pushback. 
Peer learning collaboratives leverage the supportive environment of group coaching, but with more targeted goals, greater accountability, and a quality improvement process that measures impact through learning cycles. In my training, you'll learn five new evidence-based strategies to support your leadership confidence and credibility, including how to use macro and micro root cause problem solving, how to create culture change through daily behavior change, and how to manage change and burnout. The Peer Learning Collaboratives will provide a safe environment for you to put your new skills and strategies into action while learning from other women leading similar change efforts in their organizations. As you face barriers, we will problem solve together, empowering you to use adaptive experimental processes to help you build more resilient and informed solutions. A peer learning collaborative has three phases. In the co-design phase, members are brought together from diverse areas to establish buy-in and shared ownership. Building trust is important in this phase through shared values and expectations, shared vision and goals, open communication channels, and conflict resolution processes. In the collaborative learning phase, the group process is further solidified through peer empowerment, accountability partners, and celebrating small wins. The experimental process then starts with needs assessments, behavior targets, logic modeling, and plan, do, study, act cycles. In the adaptation and scale phase, lessons from the learning phase are translated into best practice guidelines and operational toolkits. Case studies are shared and champions are empowered to promote the findings and benefits to other units. How often do you find that you're trying to prevent the fires that men love to put out? You're spoiling their quick fixes and save the day hero-based approaches. Instead, you can see the forest and the trees. You want to disrupt the status quo with more collaborative, adaptable, long-term approaches that change how and why we work, bringing in flexibility and greater purpose. Yet your ideas are dismissed and the systems remain stuck, perpetuating bias and burnout. My training will give you the confidence and credibility to lead through change, manage change, and leverage change for transformational change. It will show you that your intuitive gendered intelligence is supported by tried and tested scientific frameworks, and it will provide you with more processes and tools to leverage that knowledge for greater impact and social good, based in public health science, behavior change science, and implementation science. Never before have we been through a global pandemic, racial reckoning, mental health epidemic, or great resignation. With a recession looming, post-pandemic stress levels are likely to remain high and resources low. Reports from Deloitte, Microsoft, Adeco, and Modern Health show that employees are dissatisfied with the current fix-the-person solutions and want to see transformational change in the organization itself. The need to lead with impact and provide return on investment is greater than ever, in more uncertain, challenging, and complex times than ever. During these times of monumental change, there have been few guiding frameworks for leaders. There are not yet evidence-based solutions to these new emerging and urgent problems. 
So it's even more essential to use evidence-based processes to manage change. My behavior science tools will enable you to embrace complexity, lead through change, and manage the overwhelm. I want to help women leaders with a new playbook for compassionate and competent leadership in times of change and complexity, with evidence-based frameworks and strategies for moving beyond the status quo and leading the workforce of the future. When you join a peer learning collaborative, you'll gain confidence, camaraderie, and compassion for the challenges you face. We will use scientific tools and processes to guide our progress, use behavior change strategies to keep us on track, and key indicators of change to evaluate our impact. Over a 12-week period, you'll set goals for the changes you want to see in your organization. You'll operationalize them as behaviors. You'll prepare your organization for change by creating a safe learning and growth culture. You'll roll out and measure what is working and why and develop ways to overcome barriers to change. You'll share your progress and challenges with the other executive women in your cohort so they can benefit from your experience, so they can provide support and ideas for solutions, and so that together you can exponentially grow your learning, leveraging each other's adaptations and innovations to similar problems. The training and cohorts will be available in 2023. In the meantime, I've created a free masterclass to introduce you to the five key strategies because change can be scary and you still might be uncertain about what it takes. My five evidence-based leadership strategies are leading through complexity with compassion, understanding root causes and solving macro and micro problems using the social ecological model and lessons from public health, leading with impact, identifying and operationalizing key change levers using behavior change science and strategies to create sustainable habits that change systems. Leading with insight, creating the conditions for a culture of change using psychological safety, emotional intelligence, rewarding daily behaviors, and empowering role models. Leading with curiosity, finding and testing new solutions for employee wellness, retention, and belonging using peer learning collaboratives as a supportive and science-based process for managing change and developing resilience. Leading with clarity, understanding and managing multifaceted burnout so you and those you lead can thrive through change using multi-level burnout solutions. If you're ready to start on a new leadership journey, I look forward to guiding you through this in my online course, and supporting you in a peer learning collaborative. Please direct message me to get access to the free masterclass or sign up for the 2023 start. And please remember, burnout can be related to serious health problems. If you're experiencing physical or mental health symptoms, please contact a health provider or call the appropriate helpline. This podcast does not replace medical advice. Take care. You're a fighter Push the limits and see it You're already there Told you we going higher Ain't no stopping